what would we all be without it? Christina, who are you? What is your origin story? I am the oldest daughter to Cuban-born immigrants who came here in the early 60s. I grew up in South Florida. I call myself a 200 percenter, so I am 100% Cuban, 100% American. I moved up to the Northeast uh, right after college and got married to a wonderful guy, and we are parents to four kids, two boys, two girls, and the oldest is about to graduate from high school next year. And I'm also, in addition to being the oldest daughter, I'm the oldest granddaughter. So I, I was sort of that pace setter for our family, for my generation. Professionally, I get to lead diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement for a global asset management firm. You know, but most won't, that this was a longtime sort of dream of mine to get to do this work. That's why I say it this way. I grew up professionally, uh, started in finance, and then I took what I say is a hard left, and I spent about 20 years in biotech and pharma doing mostly commercial roles. I was in sales, sales leadership, marketing, training. And then I discovered this thing called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I just about fell in love with the idea of being able to pour all my energy and attention and focus into something that's so important for so many companies. And that's how you and I first met. When I sort of said it out loud, this is what I want to do. I had a leader at the time that said, I, I don't think I can help you, but I think I know someone who can. And that was about 11 years ago. And since then, I worked really hard for, for some years to try to cross that bridge from commercial to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've been doing this work in earnest as my full-time job for about the last six and a half years. Probably the most amazing part of that story is while you've done a lot in your career, you chose to do this on purpose, knowing fully what you were going to get into. Because we know this work, right? And the fact that you, because this whole episode is about allyship, the fact that you went to somebody, told them this is what you want to do, and they were an ally for you at that time, or you would have never went and asked them in the first place. No matter what their answer would have been, you hadn't viewed that person as an ally, you would not have gone to them. And what I want people to sort of hear in this episode as we do this work is that allies are around us all the time. Question is, are you available so that an ally can help you. Because sometimes we look at allies and it's only in this reactive state. Something happened, I need somebody to support me, and when they show up for me, therefore they're an ally, and that's when I see allyship. But the reality is allies are around us all the time. And I want the listeners to sort of hear our stories as we're going through this today. Your ability to own where you are on your own journey and then be able to call out, like you did, Christina, call out what you need and where you want to go is an invitation to the allies that have been around you the whole time to then become a part of your support mechanism. Nobody knows the real number to this, but how many allies have been in your life? Sometimes you can count them, sometimes you can't, but think about all the people who have helped you, that now that we're talking about this, they have been allies for you. How many would you mm -hmm. say? If I had to put a number to it, I'll say the ones that are known to me in some way, easily in the dozens. And then there are probably dozens more that I have no idea that they have been allies for me, sort of in the background, behind that green curtain. And that's the beautiful thing, uh, Reggie. I love the way that you 
frame that up. Like we need to be available and we need to show a little bit of vulnerability when we want others to advocate or be allies for us. I always tell like my kids, I don't have a crystal ball. So if I don't know the story that you're telling yourself, I can't possibly step in and help in some way. I need to ask. I need to constantly be asking, what's your story? But without that communication, we miss the magic. We miss it. Every single time. Every single time. You know, one of the things I want to talk about is there's a, um, a word that gets thrown around in DEI spaces, and it's called privilege. And for some people view privilege as maybe there's negative connotation to it. Like if I have it and I have so much of it, then I'm viewed a certain way. So some people hide their privilege. But I don't think that that's the most healthy way to look at privilege. We all have ordinary privilege. The things that are accessible to us that we can use in service of others. Everyone has privilege. And so I want to spend a little bit of time in this space talking to you about how you use your ordinary privilege just to be an ally for other people. So how have you become an ally for people? And I guarantee you, ordinary privilege was a part of it. Yeah, so I completely it was. I think sometimes we need to help people by defining what is ordinary privilege, or at least give some examples. It's such a charged word because it's typically only thrown around in a racial context or in a gender context. You have white privilege, you have male privilege. Well, no, I, I enjoy a lot of privilege and I am a Latina and I am a, a woman inherent in that word, right? So I think we have to recognize, maybe pause sometimes and say, okay, right now, what do I have access to? What do I have the upper hand in that maybe others don't? And then how can I use it? I think the easiest way to answer your question of how I've used ordinary privilege is to give you some examples, because otherwise it becomes a theoretical conversation and it's hard for others to latch on to it. Many people professionally are maybe managing others or working alongside people. So we have the opportunity on a pretty regular basis to give voice to the voiceless or approach something slightly differently. So what comes to mind for me is I used, you know, my ordinary privilege when I hired someone a few years back and I allowed them to write their own introduction. Now that is a super simple thing, right? Who wouldn't want to do that? Reggie, tell me about you. Rather than me make up your story, tell me what you want others to know. And I am going to use that when I celebrate the fact that you've taken this job. The person that I did this for, it was no big deal for me. It didn't take me a whole lot of work. There was no sweat equity involved there. It was just, this is something that needs to get done. Let me flip the script on how it's usually done and give that person a little bit more agency. It was the first time he had ever been asked to do that. A biracial gay man living with a chronic disease who had never been able to say any of those things in his introduction. And by the way, all were germane to the job we were hiring him to do. And it made a massive difference to him feeling seen and included. And then the outpouring from people who read his announcement and celebrated that he got to talk about the fact that he lives with his husband in this part of New York and they have their cat and they do. That's it. I mean, that is a simple, tiny example of using ordinary privilege. It's not about gender. It's not about race. It's not about any of those things. I could have written it. I chose not to. And I think that's one of the ones as I was like, you know, flipping through examples in my mind, that is an easy one. Doesn't doesn't take very much. 
Yeah, and I think that the power of small people underestimate because you, you know, giving him agency, allowing him to make the choices to shape his own narrative, it's small on your side, meaning the amount of effort and energy expended, but it's massive in the intake for him because he not only did he get to shape his story, he also got to set the tone for how people could experience him. And it didn't take that much. So, you know, people who are listening right now, it doesn't matter who's around you as much as it matters what you do for the people around you. Because sometimes we see a lot of people, they, well, who can I be an ally for? How about be an ally all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Just keep your eyes open and look out for it. The other example, and this is more a thematic one because I do it a lot, is I love to share the unwritten rules within a culture or within an industry for people who are brave enough to ask. So it goes a little bit to what you said. Like you as an individual need to be open to asking for something. Maybe you don't even know what it is. What this looks like is anytime somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn, happened a lot more in my previous life when I worked in pharma and biotech, because there's always people itching to get into the industry. They would reach out and they would say, I see what you do and who you work for. I keep applying for jobs at your company and it's not happening. Why isn't it happening? Do you think you can help me? Look, I'm sure many of us get those messages. I answer every single one. And the reason I answer is because I imagine the courage it took for that person to reach out and ask me. I'm not talking about the solicitors that are looking to pitch you business. This is about an individual, usually very early in their career, usually an underrepresented minority in some fashion, being courageous enough to say, hey, you are the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Clearly, I'm doing something wrong. Will you help me? And I always answer, yes, if you're willing to have a conversation, let's talk. And then we have a brutally honest, transparent discussion about their resume. How have they shown up? What kind of homework have they done? Because that helps me gauge to what extent I can really be an ally or advocate for them. Or if this is just a, let me just see, you know, if somebody's willing to help me and you can tell that the work's not really there. I have one person in my mind where we actually talked several times, never met the man in real life. And months after we had our first conversation, you know, he ended up getting hired at my last company. And yeah, yeah. And, and because once his resume was in good shape and I felt as though he had taken in the feedback and was really considering it, handed it to the right hiring managers, advocated for him on his behalf. And I was super honest. This is how I met the person. This was a cold outreach on LinkedIn. I don't have a front row seat to their work, but I was willing to be an ally to him based on his vulnerability with me and commitment to do something differently. And I hate unwritten rules that keep people out. That's why I like to do the equity work. That's equity, right? You remove those barriers. If nobody tells him, nothing, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And, you know, Christina, in the, even in the framing of the story, because you're wired toward allyship, meaning wired toward helping others, and it doesn't even matter who they are, sometimes people, when we talk about allyship, they think it's for very specific people that they already know 
that have been marginalized, ostracized, something happened to them, it's been a series of microaggressions, they've been passed over, and they look for those moments that sometimes are based in either misunderstandings, misrepresentations, or trauma of some type. And then they step in as an ally. And the breadth and depth of what we're talking about today is allyship is all the time, if you choose that as a life choice, and it doesn't have to be only for people who are going through something. It can be for anyone. Now, you would have never noticed the person on LinkedIn had you already not had in you as a human, I want to be helpful, and somebody asked me a question. And I have privilege to answer the question. It was that simple in your mind. It's like, I work here. They asked me a question about something I know about. So let me use my ordinary privilege of being a part of this community and reach out and answer. I'll tell you one of the beautiful things about what you just said in that context is you never met the person <laughs> and yet you were still an ally with no expectation that he would actually get hired. That wasn't the point. The point is you're being helpful. That's what it leads me to when I talk about allyship all the time is you know you're an ally when you do it in a serving others type of way, in service of someone else versus looking for, and that's not always the reward or the, it, sometimes for people it's the acknowledgement that my allyship worked. True allies don't look for that. Well, I think truer allies just don't. They don't seek it out. I think so much of the interesting complexity and awkwardness about some of the conversations we have about allyship is sort of this switch that's flipped in somebody's mind to say, I want to be an ally. I'm going to go look for ways to be an ally. That's a little awkward. I mean, what are you going to do? Start knocking on the door of, you know, if you're straight, you're going to go knock on the door for people you believe to be in the community and say, how can I help you today? Well, then there is a power dynamic there that we should talk about. But that's why it feels so awkward as opposed to, can we just assume an allyship posture? Can we just be open to the fact that there are probably ways I could be helping others on a regular basis? I just need to be intentional about being open for those opportunities when they come my way. Yeah. There are people inside of organizations who are, I'm not going to say totally invisible population, but they are in either a marginalized group, an underrepresented group. And the ability for us to be allies for them takes a different type of energy. So it's one thing when you are, you know, an ally for life, ally all the time. But there's sometimes where we're asking people to be very, very intentional about their allyship approach and their allyship follow through. Sometimes yeah. we, as allies, we approach and say, how can I be helpful? And if the person doesn't respond in kind in the moment, we tend to not follow through. And allies follow through. They follow up, yeah. they follow through. Now you spend time navigating the nuances of cross-cultural allyship as a part of a global organization. What's the key learnings for you? about allyship, how it happens cross-culturally. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm deep in this right now, Reggie. I should have maybe said in my origin story that the company that I'm with right now, I've only been here for not even a year and a half. I'm obviously still learning. And this is the first time that I'm going from doing this work functionally in a region for North America, where I spent my last four and a half years, to doing it globally. So I have very intentionally from day one said, here's where I'm going to be learning from all of you. Here's the thing that I haven't done in the past. 
So I am probably going to make mistakes. I am going to, if you're open to it, reach out and seek your input and feedback as we go, because I don't want to miss things that inherently are not going to be obvious to me. I grew up in a North American context, in Western mindset for many things. And so I think that's part of it is just naming it and saying, like, not pretending that you know everything. I may be the subject matter expert on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but that doesn't mean I've got it all figured out every day. You know, this work changes constantly. So (laughs) I think, one, I'm trying to be open and vulnerable. I literally enter rooms you know, I had a, a a meeting with the leadership of our Asia Pacific team not long ago, and it was maybe 12 of us in the room. They had thoughtfully sent me some content in advance and said, if we want to be truly globally inclusive, here are some of the things that we continue to see and feel we wanted to share with you. That's a big deal from a very Eastern perspective to share so openly that kind of feedback. So I entered the room grateful, gracious, listening, and asking together, we we came up with some ideas that we think will help us chip away at some of the feeling of exclusion that they had. And now I have to follow through with it, Reggie. So I heard them, they offered, I listened, we have some concrete things that we're going to do. And that's step one, we need to be flexible. And we need to know that the way that we've always done things in the past may not be the right approach if we want to be truly culturally aware and adapt a more global approach and and mindset to this work. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm talking to allies and, you know, they are put in positions that they weren't before, meaning they're in one region, they spent most of their time in that region, and now they have, you know, a global context. And I tell them, work on cultural dexterity and global fluency. Like, if you're really going to stay relevant in this space, in these times, the global fluency that you need to skill up in is a choice. True to some people, it's like, I don't know that I'm ready for that yet because I barely have (laughs) my own cultural fluency down to be an ally in that space. But when it's under your remit, though, I'm telling allies, you have no choice. Yeah. And then the ally relationship gets flipped, doesn't it? Because if I want to do this work well in Asia Pacific, I need a local ally to help guide me so that I can not make some of the mistakes that others potentially do. So it's a very reciprocal relationship. And it goes to what you said before. In that instance, the group on the ground has the ordinary privilege and the perspective to educate me the expert to make sure that we are being thoughtful and inclusive. Yeah. And we can do more of that, but we have to be intentional and conscious to actually think about it in such a way where we're looking for it. Like you said earlier, I think most business cultures are reactive where there's pressures from the demands on the business or deadlines or we react a lot. And part of allyship is to be proactive. And to really be intentional about how you get there. I think there are lessons, though, you know, like we all learn over time, even as allies, we're all in this learning journey together. But one of the biggest things in cultures, and you and I have spent a lot of time in this space, is about psychological safety. And being an ally for someone, so if you do it at the individual level, there has to be enough psych safety that exists. What lessons about allyship have you learned in your work 
that you actually apply to creating psych safety for marginalized individual groups or communities? It's interesting. I think because of the work I get to do, and in almost every organization, we have employee resource groups. And in ERGs, you know, or affinity groups, whatever they happen to be called, we call them communities. You've got these perfect little like examples of almost extreme psychological safety because you're entering into a room willingly, wantingly with your people, whoever your people is, like whoever you find community with. And so there's this free-flowing sharing of ideas and concerns and what you're living through and what you're going through. And that gorgeousness sometimes, most times, doesn't exist as you zoom out to the rest of the organization. So, and I, because of what I get to do, I get to bop in and and really understand how these small communities work and see how, how beautiful it is when they work together and they become allies to one another, right? And all of a sudden, you know, if you have your your working parents group working with your LGBT group on something on bullying, then you've just brought together, made connections. And that that kind of psychological safety and allyship is what I seek to apply as we're looking for psych safety across the organization. Once a month in our team meetings, we invite in those who are tangential to us, who are connected to us. So our communications partner, our project manager, who are not part of our team, but my gosh, we can't get our work done without them. And what that has done, it has created a stronger sense of belonging for those individuals. And now we have better cohesion. We have a better culture of belonging within what I call our expanded team. And we can get work done better. And we have a better time at it because now we've gotten to know them at a more cellular level rather than transactional. You know, the reason those communities work so well is because there is an extreme interest in getting to know one another. How do you take that lesson and now apply it functionally? How do you make sure it's just part of how you operate? Yeah, and I believe in that we all are learners all the time. And every situation that allies get involved in and engaged in, there's a learning that comes out of it. Because no ally situation is the same every single time. Our intentions are the same, to be helpful, but there's always lessons in it. I think we learn. I love what you said about just the reciprocity of allyship. And I think what I'd like for people to do is sort of take the learning from your ally moments and then either try to replicate it, make it, you know, scale it or refine it. Because that's the other thing I want allies to do. We're works in progress (laughs) all the time. We can take the lessons we learned from our last ally encounter and say, what would I do differently? Even in a similar situation, what would I do differently? because they're not all the same. Sometimes I find allies fall into a set of of patterns, um, which is great because we all recognize the power of patterns. But sometimes you're gonna have a person that needs you to be an ally for them. And the pattern that's in your head is not the one that's the most helpful for them. So I challenge allies to sort of pull back and go, what lessons am I learning? How can I do this across different situations, not different groups? different situations because allyship is situational at best. Audit where the time is spent so that you can start to uncover your own patterns. If you're spending time with the same people, teams, functions, 
that will give you a clue, perhaps, that where you're not spending time, that's who might need more allyship. I started adopting Reggie, and I credit my current leader for this entirely. After everything that I do, and I think more like functionally, project-wise, I ask the question, what would have made that even better if? And I ask it of myself, but I ask it of others too. So even in what you just described in these allyship lessons, you say, okay, that was great, but what would have made it even better if, you know, it would have been even better if I had done this, or it will be even better if I do that. And I'm applying that question all the time. And just the posture and the tone of that, who wouldn't want to make something even better? I tell you, hey, this was great, but Reggie, what would make it even better? You want to give me that feedback. You don't feel badly about delivering on that. And I think we can apply that to these allyship lessons as well. uh, And I think it could help accelerate. Yeah. And we also know that everything is cultural, right? All organizations are working on the culture of belonging, where people can feel feel like they can contribute, their voice is heard, they feel seen, they feel like they're a part of a a social, professional, or cultural community. Everybody wants to belong. As a matter of fact, research tells us we all crave belonging, which is just, it's adjacent to human connection. We all crave human connection. And when that happens, what we see is that amazing things in the level of innovation, in the lane of productivity and morale, everything rises when you feel like you belong. This is a perspective I have. I know everybody may not share this, but I believe one of the stewards of belonging in terms of cultures or manager populations. If you were to give advice to managers, like people leaders, what would you tell them to do in terms of being allies so they can empower them to like take ownership and accountability for creating it for their people? What advice would you give them? Don't keep it to yourself. I think the biggest mistake, myself included, that people managers make, particularly when they're newer to the role. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday who's a newly minted people manager. We want to figure it all out on our own. And we don't want to demonstrate vulnerability to our team or to our new or to the leader that that bestowed this ability to lead others upon us. Because if you if you ask questions, if you say you don't know or that you're working on something, you're projecting weakness or you're sharing maybe with somebody, you know, you're, you're letting them see a little bit of your imposter syndrome. To me, the greatest way a people manager can create ownership and accountability, particularly on a culture of belonging and allyship, is to say it out loud. This is something I haven't spent as much time working on I want to get better at this. In order for me to do so, I am going to look to all of you to help me in this process. And in telling you this, I'm going to invite you to say if something is making you feel like you belong or not. Like, I want to have those check-ins. But first and foremost, you got to know that I'm working on it because now you've created that. Now you've said it. I I want to do it. That That is on the individual level, Reggie, I think So frequently managers say, hey, I want to work on this. Can you go make a program to help us get better at that? Look, I can make all the programs that you want, but at the end of the day, you still have to do the work and you don't do the work in isolation. You do it with all the people that you work with on a daily basis. If you want to be an ally all the time, I think it's important first that you make that decision and even better if you tell someone else that you've done it. 
it can be someone at work. It can be your spouse, your partner. It, it, it can be your best friend. Tell someone you've done it because that will create additional accountability for you and your need to pull through this commitment that you're making. Once you've made that decision, I am an ally all the time. I want to do this. Then be ready to receive the opportunities that exist. They've been around you all the time. But because you've made the decision, I guarantee they'll start to show up differently. And then you can step in and you can take action. Right, 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 right. Oh, Christina, there are a lot of people that entered their ally world not knowing that they were one. <laughs> and then and then someone tells them because they finally, the recipient of their allyship efforts, the person feels like they belong. And then they go tell them, this is what you did for me. And it's like, oh, I didn't even know I was an ally. And it's the beautiful surprise, but the complexities of human dynamics. And yeah. so culture is really complex. And when you're trying to build strong cultures and you put the word strong culture of belonging, that means there's work that needs to be done. And there's learning that will occur over time. I think we all evolve, like we do things differently over time. I suspect in your growth, you're doing things differently now in the DEI space than you were doing before. Of course I am. Of course I am. And I'm learning constantly. And I work alongside really well-informed, brilliant individuals that read about and think about this work more than I ever have before. And you know what that does for me, Reggie, is it it makes me pause and listen and try to understand what's resonating with them or what they're bringing. And I'm inviting participation more so than I ever have before. I think prior to the racial reckoning, and you know this because you work with so many different organizations, so many DEI teams were tiny and they were trying to convince everybody else that this was important. And they got to stand up efforts and kind of go do. And there was not a lot of crowding of the space. Nobody was rushing in to talk to you about it. Now it's a completely different world. It is top of mind for so many people. And admittedly, it is new for so many people. So that requires us who get to lead the function to think about it differently, to engage differently and bring people along and be an ally for them in their learning journey. I'm talking about those who are in the majority who have never thought about those that are in the minority. Then I have some privilege and I have some agency there that I can help. Sometimes I worry that people think allyship is easy or when it gets difficult, they just give up or decide that it's just too much work and just going to go back to doing things the way that I was doing it. My hope, my reminder, my plea is keep at it. There are some times where your allyship will feel good. You'll learn something. You'll know that you're growing and that you're helping others in the process. Whatever your motivation is for doing it, don't be deterred if your allyship comes with missteps because that's actually going to help you be a better ally as you go forward. This is complicated work and good news, bad news. There's plenty of opportunity for us to continue to show up for others. Uh, just don't let the mini hurdles slow you down because it's really important and we need all the allies we can get. That so resonates with me. And what I hope my listeners are starting to pick up on is that allyship all the time, it actually doesn't mean you're doing it every day. It means you're available every day when necessary. 
allyship work and creating these cultures of belonging, we all know it happens over an arc of time. We all know it's situational. We all know some days will be better than others, but it is necessary work to create strong cultures. So thank you for spending the time with me. You continue to be inspiring to me personally, but also inspiring in this space. I know the cultures that you've been in. I've watched the change and impact you've had in those cultures. So I honor that in you and please keep going. All right, my friends, thank you for listening. We will continue our journey together. And remember the ask is to be an ally all the time. Thanks for listening. 